Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about prostate cancer with Dr. Peter Humphrey. Dr. Humphrey is a professor of pathology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Peter, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. I'm a practicing surgical pathologist, which basically means that I look at um, glass slides under a microscope and render diagnoses, often cancer diagnoses, on uh, tissues that we receive from uh, other physicians, including uh, biopsies and and resections. And so microscopes have always interested me ever since I was I was very young and looked through a microscope at pond water when I was uh, in elementary school. But it was actually uh, take, helping take care of a patient in medical school that really helped direct me into pathology. And if I can give that story and yeah, fashion. I'd love to hear about that. So I was a third year medical student, hadn't really decided on a specialty and was considering a number of different specialties, including medicine and internal medicine, radiology. Uh, Pathology wasn't so high on the list until there was an occurrence with one patient and she was on the internal medicine ward and she had uh, rib pain. And the radiologists were able to identify a uh, lesion in the rib. And the differential diagnosis that we considered clinically and the radiologists considered uh, was quite lengthy. So it really took um, a biopsy, which then went to surgical pathology in, in order to establish the diagnosis. And so I, I went down to surgical pathology, the laboratory where the attending surgical pathologist was looking um, at slides with uh, the resident on the service. And I asked if they had seen the biopsy from this particular patient. And he said he had. And then he he pulled out the slide and went through it and in pretty short order said, oh, this is metastatic cancer from the salivary gland, which was a diagnosis that was not wow. really considered uh, in this patient. It turns out she did have a history of salivary gland cancer uh, quite some time ago, 10 years prior. So it occurred to me that this was the way to really help patients by by helping render uh, diagnoses, tissue diagnoses in this way. I find that fascinating because certainly if you had a patient with rib pain, you know, metastatic cancer from a salivary gland would not be top of the list. Did the pathologist know about the distant um, diagnosis of salivary gland cancer? I think this particular cancer was so distinctive that he was able to suspect salivary gland cancer right away. I'm not sure if he knew the history, but if he he was an excellent surgical pathologist and being an excellent surgical pathologist, I'm sure he had asked the resident for the history uh, first as they uh, as as they examined the slide. Yeah. 
It's it's just absolutely fascinating. But now you've kind of transitioned, still looking at cancers, but but now you're into the world of genitourinary pathology. So tell us a little bit more about how your interests uh, transitioned um, to that. So more more transitions. So in residency, a big part of pathology residency, which is pretty broad based, we uh, rotate through a number of different services, subspecialty services, and those services work with uh, specific uh, clinicians. And it's it's disease it's disease focused and usually organ site uh, focused. And so. For example, a genito, as a genitourinary pathologist, I interact very closely with uh, the urologist and uh, medical oncologists to treat um, urological cancers as well as uh, radiologists and interventional radiologists to uh, deal with these type of cancers. And specifically for the genitourinary system, this is just as sort of an introduction, uh, we basically address cancers that arise in the prostate and testis and bladder and kidney. So it turns out when I was, boy, formative years, one should never underestimate how, how a single patient or a, a, a physician can impact um, the development of the, the, the individuals who are young and, and deciding in medical school or pathology what, what route they'll choose. So I was a first-year resident, and I, I rotated through – uh, the VA hospital, which was right across from Duke University Hospital, which is where I did my residency. And it was a fascinating rotation. And, and another excellent surgical pathologist uh, was the attending there. And we saw quite a lot of prostate prostate cancer at, at that hospital, at that VA hospital. And, and yet at that time, several decades ago, dating myself a number of decades ago, there was not much known about prostate cancer and treatments were relatively uh, limited. So it seemed to me that this was an area where uh, there was much to be learned um, about diagnosis and, and prognosis as well as treatment of that that particular cancer. So that's really how I became interested as, as a first-year pathology resident in genitourinary cancers and specifically prostate cancer. So, so let's dive a little bit more into prostate cancer. You know, I think that so much of, again, what we do is really dictated by the, the biopsies that we take. So, you know, if somebody has um, a mass in the prostate or an enlarged prostate, even more globally, sometimes a, a biopsy will be done and that'll be sent to the pathologist. And it's really up to you to try to figure out is this cancer or is this something benign? And if it's cancer, how bad of a cancer is it? Which really dictates, you know, is this something that we treat at all um, or something that we simply watch? How do you make that those decisions? How do you make that differentiation from benign to malignant and within malignant, the different grades of, of prostate cancer? So it's really quite a long educational process to be able to diagnose uh, benign versus malignant. And it turns out that what's so fascinating is that every single biopsy is different. Even if we render a, an umbrella diagnosis of benign tissue, for example, benign tissue of the prostate, there could be a number of benign mimickers in there, meaning 
benign tissue looking like cancer under the microscope, but it's not. And after we die, so we have a actually a differential diagnosis. We consider a number of different benign entities before deciding on a malignant diagnosis because that's a, uh, such such a huge step to take for us and for the patient and the patient's uh, treating physician. So that's what I particularly enjoy. Also, is is that diagnostic that diagnostic work, and it can be arduous sometimes. Sometimes it's very straightforward that a particular biopsy is is benign, and uh, sometimes straightforward that it's malignant. But other times, there are benign conditions under the microscope that look like cancer, and cancer that can look benign. So we've been fortunate in this era to have some tools to help us. And those include antibodies that can help us recognize specific cells under the microscope. And, and in certain cases, that can be a real, real aid to us. But it still requires judgment. And having formed a, a differential diagnosis or consideration of what's possible before we order those tests on, on the tissue. So once having established a diagnosis of malignancy, then the next step is to decide, and this is so important for prostate cancer, how aggressive is it? Because it turns out most men who have prostate cancer will die with it rather than of it. So there are a large number of prostate cancers that can grow very slowly and may not affect the man during his lifetime, yet, yet it turns out that prostate cancer is the second most lethal cancer amongst American men by total numbers, trailing lung, only lung cancer. So those are the cancers we want to specifically separate out from the more slowly growing ones. And we do that under the microscope too, using a very powerful approach that is grade, as you suggest. So what is, what is grade? It's basically the way the cells grow within the prostate once we've identified them as cancer cells. So we can look under the microscope and there are patterns. There are specific patterns that are, are known to correlate with the outcome for the patient. And so we have various uh, tiers, various numbers we can apply. And the most simple one that we use right now is grade group and the range is from one to five, one being the best outcome. And those patients are managed very differently from patients who have a grade group uh, five out of five. But there's everything in between. So it's really a spectrum. And therein lies, again, judgment as far as deciphering, uh, as you know, the detective work, deciphering out the patterns that can help us assign a, a grade that indicates uh, aggressiveness of that, of that prostate cancer. And so, you know, one of the questions that I think always comes up is that it seems to be a little bit of art and a little bit of science. So, you know, looking at these patterns and trying to decipher, is this is this a lower grade? Is this a higher grade? How much of it is gestalt and art and how much of it is science? And and how sure are you at any given time that of your diagnosis being correct? So it is interpretation of slides under the microscope is uh, most definitely both art and science. So there's much experience that one must have in order to recognize these patterns. The science part is that we can use antibodies 
to help identify specific cells. The grading part remains, though, very much art and pattern recognition. Going forward in the future, and this has already started, we have tools that can help us recognize patterns even better and more quantitatively, and that's through the use of artificial intelligence and machine mm. learning. So all of that work has just started, but already I've had the opportunity to work in on a couple different projects. And it turns out that the computer with specific algorithms can identify, can diagnose and grade prostate cancers just as well as a number of us who specialize in, subspecialize in, in that particular area. Wow. Well, I can't wait to learn more about that. But first, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about prostate cancer diagnosis and prognosis with my guest, Dr. Peter Humphrey. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that nearly 150,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year alone. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and men and women over the age of 45 should have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Peter Humphrey. We're talking about prostate cancer diagnosis and prognosis, and right before the break, we were talking about this magic that happens in the pathology lab. At least it seems like magic to those of us who send them biopsies and magically get back a diagnosis that we then use to treat our patients. And Dr. Humphrey was telling us that this is in part art, but it is in part science and um, and that you're able to use antibodies and, and so on to help you um, in making that that diagnosis. And and right before the break, you started to talk, Dr. Humphrey, about artificial intelligence and how this might actually help us um, in making a diagnosis um, now uh, so that the computers might be able to make a diagnosis almost as well as an experienced pathologist. Tell us a little bit more about that. So we are in the very early pilot um stage, I would say, as, as far as development of this, this tool. But I think it will be an important tool that can assist the pathologist. And actually, artificial intelligence is being developed in many branches of medicine and, radi and radiology, too. So, so it turns out that those parts of medicine that deal with diagnostic images like radiology and pathology are areas where there could be great benefit from more standardization, I would say, and perhaps even quantitation using uh, computer-assisted methods. 
So that's already happening and actually happening very quickly as far as the research into this and the use of computers and artificial intelligence uh, to develop um, algorithms, ways in which the computer can diagnose uh, prostate cancer and even grade prostate cancer. So I've been fortunate enough to have been involved in a couple of these research studies and a number of us from around the world looked who are interested in prostate cancer and our genitourinary pathologist. And we've looked at hundreds of slides all, all online. So these are all images diagnosable on our uh, computer. And then the uh, we tested the algorithm had already been developed, and then the algorithm was tested against our diagnoses in grade versus uh, collections of pathologists who were not who were not specialized, subspecialized in prostate cancer diagnosis. And the computer was actually uh, just as good as our diagnosis and and grading. So, what does this mean for the future? Well, there are actually a lot of challenges yet. Uh, we don't know. There are several algorithms that have already been published, methods that the computer uses. And there's a lot of standardization that, and validation that needs to occur so that a computer can use images from a particular laboratory and one particular hospital as far as the scanners they use to make those images and the way the slides are prepared. That All of those factors can have a huge impact on the success or failure of the algorithms. Uh, my hope is that as far as standardization, it can be used as a tool to help hospitals where there may not be ready uh, access to a genitourinary pathologist. And also I think for those of us who have high volumes and have a subspecialized group of geopathologists as we do here at Yale, I think it might actually help us screen cases so that the computer could actually help us identify through all these slides, identify the ones that need particular um, attention or standardized grading. So there may be, for example, a difference of opinion about the grade of a specific cancer. And the way we currently address this, and this is very important actually, is when there's a difficult case, we'll have a consensus conference, meaning that the up to seven of us who are subspecialized in GU pathology at Yale will meet around the microscope or in this area around our computers and look at the images together to try to agree on uh, a particular grade in a difficult case or where it's a borderline case between grades, for example. So maybe the computer could also provide uh, help in standardizing uh, those, those sorts of assessments when it's a difficult or borderline case. So it sounds like uh, this is really exciting technology that might be able to provide a, a second opinion. But for right now, if you're a patient and you might not be at or near a large academic center and you get a prostate biopsy, for example, how important is it for you to get a second opinion on that biopsy uh, from another human pathologist if a computer isn't readily available? So th that's a really critical question. And I think it's important to know in in discussions with your a physician, whether a, a GU pathologist has reviewed the slides. Um, and it's true that around the country, there are just varying degrees of practice and varying volumes of practice. And so at a, a smaller hospital, maybe only a few prostate biopsies might be seen uh, over a long period of time. And particularly in those cases where 
the pathologist may not feel as comfortable or the treating physician may not uh, feel as as comfortable. It's, uh, I think, um, a useful step to seek to seek in a second opinion. And we see slides for second opinions uh, all the time here from from everyone, actually, from from patients, from treating physicians and from pathologists themselves. And this is an important quality uh, to all these second opinions. And again, we we very commonly, almost on a daily basis, share cases here at Yale amongst our group of seven uh, genitourinary pathologists. And so are these second opinions when, you know, you you go and you have your slides reviewed by somebody else, or maybe the pathologist themselves uh, sends it to a, an, another center to get reviewed if they're not quite sure about the diagnosis? Is that covered by your insurance? It usually it usually is. So at least the cases that we receive um, here in uh, for second opinions. So that's that's good to know. It, is, is it ever the case where even if you go to a large academic center, that it's worthwhile getting your slides reviewed by another large academic center? I mean, how much heterogeneity is there between experienced GU pathologists, for example? So since di- since diagnosis and grading are are still art, there can be differences of opinion amongst uh, even expert and experienced genitourinary pathologists, and these tend to be the rarer or more borderline cases. Uh, there there are a lot of there's been a lot of research on looking at uh, variations or differences of opinion uh, between pathologists and even between genitourinary pathologists and I even did a study where I looked at uh, agreement with myself. So looked, diagnosed and graded some slides and then came back sometime later and to see if the diagnosis and grading were the same. So the agreement is pretty good amongst geopathologists, but one should not hesitate um, if in seeking a second opinion at another uh, large center with an established group of geopathologists. You know, as we as we talk about that variability, all of these pathologists are looking at the same slides. And I know that in other cancers, we've talked on this show about this concept of intratumoral heterogeneity, that you might have a a cancer that looks kind of different in one part than another. Um, And so I, I wonder, you know, when you get these biopsies, if you get, you know, we often send a, a core biopsy, so a sampling of this tumor, how representative is that? And is it ever the case where, you know, you look at this and you kind of say, you know, I don't, I don't know that this is representative. We need to get more tissue or, or are you usually pretty happy with uh, the sample that you get? So that's such a key question. And, and really the practice of the biopsy practice, uh, as far as the prostate, has changed so remarkably since when I was a resident. So back in the olden days, it was usually just one needle biopsy digitally directed towards a palpable mass in the prostate by the examining physician and one single core was taken. So prostate can this concept of heterogeneity in different areas of the prostate being actually of different grades and different aggressiveness is is actually characteristic of of prostate cancer, and prostate cancer also tends to have multiple nodules within the same gland. So what's been a real advance medical advance is in radiology, and there are expert 
radiologists here who have actually helped develop this technique, and that's a special type of MRI, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, that's used with ultrasound to guide the needles, guide the needle placement within the prostate. So now, rather than one needle core, we often receive anywhere from 20 to even 30 individual needle cores per patient. And the reason is that the radiologist now can identify areas where they're suspicious of uh, cancer and can specifically say based on their grading scheme, whether they think it's uh, a lower risk or, or a higher risk case. So I do, so that I feel good about um, the representation for most patients. And when we, when the patients have undergone um, this type of imaging by the radiologists, but even so, even though multiple needle cores are placed in a single nodule, it's still possible that maybe maybe a, a smaller high-grade area was missed. So warning signs would be, oh, what if the patient has a really high serum PSA, prostate-specific antigen level, or what if this is radiologically a very aggressive-looking lesion, but we don't see that under the microscope, then I would worry uh, about what you say, the needle maybe not sampling the worst of the cancer. Yeah, it goes back to that that concept of being a bit of a detective uh, that we talked about before the break, and and the fact that the pathologist is really a, a key part of this multidisciplinary team. That you need to get information from you know the radiologist, from the surgeon, from uh, the physicians, other physicians who are involved in the case to kind of put all of the pieces together to make sure that it all makes sense. Absolutely. So that's what I love about working here is working with so many um, bright and experienced physicians here who are passionate about um, providing the highest level care and and talking with them about their what their perspective and view is on a specific patient. For example, if we if if there is not a link made between pathology, what we see and the clinical setting. So that sort of correlation is cl clinical pathologic correlation, again, so vital. Going back to that patient with uh, pain in the rib, it was absolutely essential to know that the patient had a history of cancer 10 years ago to establish firmly that the cancer seen. And what we would do is compare slides, that that cancer in the rib biopsy was the same as the cancer in the, in the salivary gland. So yeah. we do that commonly too. Look, look back at old slides to see if, you know, if cancer has come back, if we think a cancer might is might have come back or or spread. So that comparison is is really important. Part of the detective work we do for us yeah. too. And I think the other piece that's so important is that it's so critical um, in terms of what you do, especially in prostate cancer, to really nail down how aggressive this is, because it, it is the difference these days between having, you know, more aggressive surgery or or radiation versus watchful waiting. Tell us a little bit more about how your decisions impact uh, treatment and prognosis. So after establishing a diagnosis of prostate cancer, we assign the, the Gleason grade or score. That, that is a grade number we give for every single prostate cancer needle core in every case, and a grade group for, for that particular biopsy. So if a patient had 
10 positive cores with cancer in each one, we would assign a, a an individual grade to each one. But, and actually I just gave a lecture this morning to the pathology residents on grading and staging. So uh, it is one of the most critical things we do because grade is, is such a dominant prognostic indicator for us, uh, for the patient's physician, for everyone and the, and the patient themselves. And that really will help, for example, a grade group one, a patient with a lower PSA might consider, along with their physician, the physician might consider active surveillance or careful monitoring of that cancer compared to a grade group five where everyone would agree this patient definitely needs active therapy. Dr. Peter Humphrey is a professor of pathology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.